everybody. My name is Chad, founder of ConformToJesus.com, where the mission and goal is to help Christians share the gospel and strengthen their faith through Bible commentary, devotionals, theology, and poetry for the glory of God. To read my articles, you can visit my website at ConformToJesus.com. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. In today's episode, we're going through the modern Bible commentary, and we're in chapter 9, and we're using the World English Bible because it provides a complete translation of the Bible in normal modern English and can provide unrestricted free posting on the internet, as well as be freely copied without permission from the publisher and payment of royalties. Just like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it states that we're saved by grace through faith It's not of ourselves, it's a free gift. So is the word of God here. So let us read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience, testifying with me in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing pain in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, for my brother's sake, my relatives according to the flesh, who are Israelites, whose is the adoption, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service, and the promise. Chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans is arguably the most important section concerning the Jewish people as it relates to their covenantal and eschatological relationship with God. In these chapters, God promises that in Romans 11:26, all Israel will be saved. The Apostle Paul addresses that Gentiles, who were adopted into the family, should show mercy to the Jews, Romans 11.31. And finally, Paul reiterates throughout the epistle how the gospel is brought to the Jews first, and here in chapter 9, how Shual, Paul was willing to be under God's curse to help his fellow brethren. Paul expresses this notion of having unceasing, permanent anguish in his heart for the people of Israel. He imitates that of Moses. Remember when Israel apostatized and built that golden calf? In Exodus 32, 32, Moses prayed, The people have sinned a great sin and have made themselves gods of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, blot me out, I pray, out of your book which you have written. The fact that Paul was willing to be cut off from Christ for the sake of the people of Israel shows the magnitude of our role to share the gospel with the Jews. Did you know that in the synagogues today, the Jews pray that their sins would be forgiven and their names would be written in the book of life? This is a testimony of how ripe they are to hear the gospel and be saved. Let's show them their Messiah from the scriptures. Let us now begin in Romans chapter 9 verses 4 through 5. Who are Israelites? Whose is the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service, and the promises? Of whom are the fathers, and from whom is Christ, as concerning the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. In this passage, Paul is expressing that they inherited the divine sonship. God chose Israel by establishing the covenants, giving them the law, temple worship, and human ancestry of the Messiah. 
Not only were these covenants promised in Genesis 17 and Exodus 19 through 24, but also the new covenant, Jeremiah 31:30, that was created by Jesus. In fact, the new covenant was given to the Jews first, although its term extended to include the Gentiles. Romans chapter 9 verses 6 through 9. But it is not as though the word of God has come to nothing, for they are not all Israel that are of Israel. Neither because they are Abraham's offspring are they all children, but your offspring will be accounted as from Isaac. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as heirs. For this is a word of promise. At the appointed time I will come and Sarah will have a son. In verse 6, Paul makes it clear that God's word did not fail. While God is sovereign, the one who promised never to leave or forsake Israel, the Lord also gives humans the freedom to accept or reject his plan. Those who reject his decrees are to blame, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Furthermore, Paul states that it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. This promise is not physical, but spiritual. Just because someone came from the same lineage as the Messiah, or is a Jew by birth, does not grant them inheritance. They must be circumcised in the heart and be born again by the Spirit. Romans chapter 9 verses 10 through 13. Not only so, <clears throat> but Rebekah also conceived by one by our father Isaac. For being not yet born, neither having done anything good or bad, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, that the elder will serve the younger, even as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, Malachi 1, 2 through 3. This passage articulates divine election. It's hard to fathom, but God did not choose Jacob by his works of obedience. He did not reject Esau because of his unrighteous lifestyle. Rather, before the twins were born or did anything good or bad, God had already ordered their steps. His providence was already established that the older will serve the younger, for God loved Jacob but hated Esau. The Greek word for hate here is emismisa. It means to love less. Genesis 29:31, Deuteronomy 21:15, Matthew 6:24, and Luke 14:26. In today in today's vernacular, the words love and hate would be rendered accepted and rejected. Therefore, God doesn't actually hate Esau, instead he was rejected to become the object of his mercy. Paul would discuss this seemingly contradictory idea between God's sovereignty and man's human responsibility in the next several verses in Romans chapter 9 verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? May it never be, for he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose I caused you to be raised up, that I might show in you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So God has the divine right to do whatever he wishes. He can display mercy to whomever he pleases or harden whomever he desires. This is a difficult concept to accept. As humans, we are accustomed to being the center of the universe, but pride and self-esteem have turned our thinking into humanism and idolatry of self rather than the adoration of God. This paragraph is an important reminder that God is the central character of the story. He is in charge of who participates in his divine will. Therefore, it would behoove us to humble ourselves and seek the mercy of God. For all of us have sinned and deserve God's wrath. No one truly deserves his compassion and mercy. Also, there is comfort in knowing it does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. If it was up to human effort, we would fail miserably. Just ask yourself the following questions. Have you ever lied, been angry, lusted, coveted something that was not yours, disobeyed parents, created an idol in your heart? In all honesty, in all honesty our condemnation is just. Once we change our viewpoint to God's perspective, this verse does not become as difficult. It's still hard to accept, but this is God's world. He can raise men like Pharaoh up to display his glory and then cast them away from his mercy. So therefore, pray and hope that God will spare your life with his mercy and grace. Reading now Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 21. You will say then to me, why does he still find fault for who withstands his will? But indeed, O man or O woman, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed ask him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Or hasn't the potter a right over the clay from the same lump to make one part a vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Paul anticipates the rebuttal from this theology. Because one might say, if God hardens us, how can he blame us? If God predestines us, then how are his ways just? The idea of resisting God's will comes from the Greek word which ex expresses opposition or standing against God's will. The Apostle Paul responds with a metaphor. He describes God as the potter and the humans as the clay. He asks next the simple question, doesn't the potter have the right to do what he wants with the clay? And the answer, of course, is yes, whether we like it or not. The potter is in complete control. Without the potter, the clay is useless. It, it cannot function on its own. So therefore, as created beings, we're not the creator. We have no right to tell the potter, that is God, how to use his clay, how to use his creation. Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 25. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, who was not beloved. It will be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called children 
of the living God. While God is completely sovereign in this passage, he demonstrates human volition. First says, God bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. Therefore, while the Lord does harden sinners, keep in mind that they hardened their own hearts too. Exodus 8.32 says, But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. God gave Pharaoh multiple opportunities to repent. For instance, the plagues God sent were actually done in mercy because God was pleading with Pharaoh to let the Israelites go or things would get much worse. Pharaoh's hardened heart continued to rebel despite God's patience, and, and this led to more suffering. In addition, God not only made a covenant with Israel, but a new covenant to both the Jews and the Gentiles. God has called every tribe, tongue, and nation to repent and believe in the gospel. 2 Peter 3.9 articulates God's desire here that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And finally, uh, Paul wraps up Romans chapter 9 in verses 27 through 33. Isaiah Christ concerning Israel, If the number of the children of Israel are as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant who will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make short work upon the earth. As Isaiah said, unless the Lord of armies has left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have been made like Gomorrah. Paul uses the Greek word to convey remnant as those who are left surviving at the end. This passage was quoted from Isaiah 10.23 and refers to God's work in saving a remnant from the previous Assyrian destruction. The overwhelming power of the Assyrian army would make the readers remember how the Israelites felt being defeated. But that's why God has promised a remnant that will survive through even the fiercest battle at the end of the age. Additionally, Paul uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of being completely destroyed in judgment. But this was not due to a human army, but rather the power of God. So even in the midst of judgment, God showed his mercy to Judah. He spared Lot. The Lord always has a remnant, and this is the hope Paul is conveying throughout his letter. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who didn't follow after righteousness attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, following after a law of righteousness, didn't arrive at the law of righteousness? Why? Because they didn't seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, even as it is written, Behold, I lay on Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and no one who believes in him will be disappointed. Previously, Paul made it clear that the only way to be saved was through faith. It is not by the works of the law, and that salvation only comes through the work of a crucified Savior. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 Unfortunately, this idea of salvation by faith became a stumbling block to the nation of Israel. They attempted to, to earn their righteousness by keeping the law. However, we know that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, Romans 3.20. 
Furthermore, Paul shows that Israel is responsible for their present condition. They stumbled over their own stumbling block by trying to attain justification through the law like many other people do today. But Galatians 3.24 states that the law was meant to be a guardian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the law is still good. The Torah is still good. The law points us to Christ. Jesus said, Yeshua said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. He also told the disciples that the law has not become obsolete. It is not abolished. He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So we are still to obey the Torah. We are to obey God's righteous decrees. At the same time, the difference is that the law never had the power to save us. And this is where, in the Old Testament, the Israelites had that misstep. Only the imputation of Christ's righteousness is sufficient to do that. And the Apostle Paul will clarify these concepts in chapter 10. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today. I look forward to being with you next time as we go through Romans chapter 10. Have a wonderful day.